Just like most episodes, this one contains strong language. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and in no way represent the state of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Historical Society, or the Oklahoma State Historic Preservation Office. Welcome to the Musings of an ADD Mind podcast. This is your host, Jack, and I have the ADD Mind. Today, we're doing something a little different, but it's things that interest me, and that's the whole point of the podcast. So, that being said, here we go. We're going to talk about all the aspects of historic preservation, which when people call my museum, think it means the preservation of books, but it does not. It is buildings. And today, I have my my boss, my division head, the deputy shippo of the state of Oklahoma. Linda Ozan. Linda, if you could say hi and just give a brief summary of your career in historic preservation. Well, thanks for inviting me, Jack. Well, thanks uh, for coming. Yeah. My name's Linda Ozan. I have been with the State Historic Preservation Office in Oklahoma for almost 15 years, um, which is hard to believe I've been in Oklahoma that long. But it started obviously well before that based on my age. Um, I started right after I got my master's degree working in the private sector for an oil gas highway company and eventually worked my way to the South Dakota State Historic Preservation Office and have lived all over the country doing preservation from east to west coast. Uh, so my last job brought me here and I married someone from Oklahoma. So now I feel like I'm never getting out. Well, you guys do have season tickets to OU football, so you can't give those up. You never get them back. <laughs> There's that, too. <laughs> so you can't leave for that. <laughs> the one question I'm always asked is, why is saving an older building important, and why shouldn't we just tear it down and build a new one? Those are sort of common questions. Right. Well, you know, it dates, the preservation movement really dates back to the Mount Vernon Ladies Association when they were trying to preserve Washington's home. And preservation really started out as the saving of white rich men's history. And since that time, clearly we've evolved to um, pretty much anything that's kind of over 45 years of age has architectural integrity. So why do we save them? And the most important aspect of that is that people identify with their communities, right? When we think mm -hmm. back to where we grew up, we think about buildings and places. And when those things are gone, it's hard to mentally navigate back to where you were at one time. And so to me, I think it really is about place and integrity of place and just being able to identify those key important elements within the community that deserve to be saved. Okay. I know that when Tinker tore down the movie theater, everybody my age, Tinker Air Force Base, everybody my age was heartbroken because a lot of memories going to the 12 o'clock movie on Saturday with 50 cent hot dogs. And, you know, mom give you two bucks and you were good to go. And those sure. horrible people tearing it down or tore it down. 
they can't do that without checking with me first. <laughs> I wish it was that easy, right? Right. <laughs> I had that kind of authority, but I don't. So, um, real quick, we'll get back to buildings. What are some of the other programs that, like, our office does, but probably are pretty common in shippos throughout the country? I know there's Main Street and sort of similar things. Sure. Well, in 1966, when the National Historic Preservation Act was passed, it outlined the responsibilities of state historic preservation offices. So every state has a preservation office and every territory has a preservation mm-hmm. office. They're required. And so as part of that, it's our National Register of Historic Places program, our federal compliance with uh, Section 106 of the Preservation Act. It's the tax credit programs, and it's our certified local government programs. And all of those, when you partner them together, their main goal is the preservation and retention of historic buildings and archaeology sites. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then you get into other programs that we oversee, like the Farm and Ranch Program, which is not federally mandated. That's a state program, but it looks at ranch properties, farm properties that have been active for 100 years or more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have a GIS program in our office where we work on mapping of historic places and developing storyboards about those historic places. And then again, we work in partnership with other people like Main Street. Um, mm-hmm. Many states have the National Main Street program. And so with those communities, we reach out to them and work with them on like building preservation aspects, things that they need to know about that, how to convert upstairs into residential areas or offices, mm-hmm. how to get them sprinkled to meet code. We also work with Preservation Oklahoma, which is a statewide nonprofit organization that their mandate is to do things that the state office can't do, right? So that they mm-hmm. go out and they advocate for historic buildings and work, help work on legislation and things like that to protect them. And then you get into um, other programs as well, like we work with cities and work on their ordinances and codes to protect and preserve historic buildings. Okay. Well, obviously I knew that, but this is for the listeners. Um, so like the mainstream program, the main street program, sorry if I could talk. So like if you see, say a smaller town and sort of main streets, a little run down, all of a sudden money starts going in sort of collectively to make the fronts sort of look better. Is that a mainstream main street program <laughs> where they something we work with them to help uh, revitalize sort of the downtown of a smaller town? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, you have to apply to be in the main street program in Oklahoma, and there's no guarantee that you will get accepted into that program. With Main Street, however, comes um, requirements. They have to have a Main Street manager. They have to raise their own funds. They don't necessarily get funds from Main Street itself to do rehab, but they work to um, together within the city to raise funds. Like in the community of Enid, they've developed their own preservation green. And what they do is they remove those facades that were put on in the 60s and 70s as metal facades mm-hmm. so that the property owners can then restore the facades, the historic facades behind it. Right. And so each Main Street program operates a little bit differently. Um, but at the heart of their program is preservation. There was a program that was founded by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. 
And so they really focus on preservation and then community development, marketing, and that type of thing. All right. Cool. That's very informative, which is the whole point of today's episode. (laughs) Glad I could help. Right. So I guess real quick, people might ask in comments later, what is the certified local government program? Because I know that's different than Main Street. Certified local government program, again, is um, part of the mandate by the federal law that we have to follow. And so within that program, any participant in our CLG program, again, they have to apply to participate, can receive funds from our office, which help operate their certified local government, helps them to do preservation-related projects like downtown architectural surveys, maybe archaeological surveys. Um, window restoration programs, masonry programs, any type of thing that pertains to historic preservation. Okay. Okay. And I also know that a big part of historic preservation is the tax credits. I know that's incredibly, it can be incredibly complicated. If you could give maybe a cliff note versions of that or version of how that sort of works. And how that ties in with getting buildings on the National Register, sort of the importance, obviously, saving buildings is obviously important, as you mentioned earlier, but just sort of maybe tie that in together a little bit. So in order to participate in many of our programs, the property itself has to be eligible for or listed on the National Register. By the end of your tax credit project, you have a certain window in which you actually have to get it listed on the National Register if it's not. So that's the first step, is determining that eligibility. Mm-hmm. And then a staff member or architect on staff works with the tax credit um, proponents, the people who want to do the rehab to their building, to make sure that their project meets what's called the Secretary of Interior Standards for Rehabilitation. And what that is, is a basically a prescription that's outlined by the Park Service that historic buildings have to follow. And um, there's a little bit of flexibility in them, and it's interpreted basically on each building. You, we They call them standards, but again, depends on the condition of the building, depends on what's going on in the building, depends on what the use of the building is going to be as to how those standards are interpreted. And so... There's a three-part process. The first part is where we determine if it's eligible for the National Register. The second step is for the proponent to submit to our office and the Park Service their proposal for how they're going to do the rehab to the building. And then the third part is the completion. You've done the project. Our staff comes back and looks at it and makes sure that what you said in the Part 2 matches your final application in the Part 3. And when that happens, then you can apply for the tax credits through the IRS or the tax commission in the state of Oklahoma. Okay. Okay. I know that. So when somebody does get their tax credit, it could be two, three, four, five years before they actually get it from the time of picking the building to completion, if not longer. Correct? Correct. You can, um, there's two different ways you can do it. You can, Fill out your paperwork and say you're basically going to have it done in two years, or you can phase the project. Mm-hmm. So when you phase the project, it's clearly going to take as long as it takes you to get the project complete. Mm-hmm. So from start to finish is your time frame. And sometimes pre-COVID, 
getting it done in a two-year cycle was completely doable. Mm -hmm. In the midst of COVID, it's become almost impossible to get it done in two years because of supply and demand. Mm -hmm. And so those are taking much longer. Some of those are taking three, five, seven years to complete because they can't get the actual physical goods that they need to complete the project. Right. That obviously slowing everybody down right now. Right. Right. <laughs> so even though I know it's slightly before you came to Oklahoma, one of the bigger preservation uh, rehabs in Oklahoma was the Skirvin Hotel. Sure. Could you sort of explain how bad of a state it was in and what it kind of took to get it to the amazing building that it is now. Well, if you think about anything that could go wrong with the building, that's what was going on with the Scriven Hotel prior to rehab. Mm -hmm. It had pigeons living in it. It had bats in it. It had all their waste material on every single floor. Um, it had just completely fallen into disrepair and you can surmise that there were likely homeless people living in it at some point. Mm -hmm. um, and so all these things create, obviously, issues for buildings. So drywall, plaster falling down, you know, ornamental details on the inside coming apart because they were getting exposed to water. Um, and then you deal with the exterior things like windows and masonry that were failing because nobody was taking care of it. Mm -hmm. And so as you purchase that property, and the city and state and, and all these different entities work together to make this purchase happen and get it rehabbed into a hotel. There are many steps that they go through before they can take occupancy as well as get those tax credits. So we work closely with them to look at the finishes, make sure that those details that were lost due to moisture, due to the animals come back into the building, that the exterior gets rehabbed and then they can get the credits and they can get occupancy as the hotel. Okay, thank you. And I can testify, the Skirvin is amazing <laughs> at this point. Um, Absolutely. My, uh, the Scottish club I'm in, we've had three, three, four events there, a formal event every January. And I mean, the Skirvin is just incredible. It has all these weird gargoyles sort of in the corner of the political enemies of Mr. Skirvin. <laughs> sure. And all the, many of those had to be recreated. Mm -hmm. So they did a great job of mm -hmm. recreating them. Still kind of has the old elevator that you get in and you think, is this going to go to the 14th floor? But it does. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. If you're in Oklahoma city, Go to the Skirvin, check it out. It's it's really cool. It's a great example of preservation. So, in your opinion, since you've been here, what has been the most interesting project you've been a part of? The one that comes to mind, I really enjoyed working on the Robert M. Jones Plantation down in southeastern Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And while the house itself is no longer there, it has this amazing cemetery with this huge rock wall that was constructed by the WPA. It has um, graves that have the grave houses over them. Mm -hmm. And then we've done archaeological investigations there to determine where the house was located. We found the well. 
We found um, the dump, which is super important um, because we found all the things that they were obviously throwing away. Mm -hmm. So that one was interesting in an archaeological perspective. In a building perspective, boy, that's hard-pressed because I get to see things and go places that most people will never experience living in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. So I think... I would probably say the summer that I spent with the National Park Service and members of the Cherokee Nation looking for Trail of Tears affiliated properties mm -hmm. in Oklahoma. So we were up in Adair County looking at properties and we found a house that was constructed by a woman whose parents came on the Trail of Tears. We found a segment of the road that the Cherokees traveled on when they came to Oklahoma. So that was a really good summer in that, you know, it, it opened my eyes to the Trail of Tears experience and we actually could find properties that were associated with it. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. And I'm assuming some of those properties hopefully got listed on the National Register? Three of them. Three of them. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Linda, when she came to our office, was a woman possessed getting stuff listed. We had many counties that didn't have anything, and now they have at least one. She uh, put in a lot of work doing that stuff, and it's not as easy as you think to go through and look at the standards that they have. <laughs> they can be um, pretty in-depth sometimes, and I'm just glad we've digitized them, and I no longer have to spend a day photocopying 58 books. <laughs> You know, what's really interesting, and I don't think, well, clearly many people don't know this, um, I'm on a national committee that's evaluating the way the National Register operates mm -hmm. and determining if there's other things that we need to consider because a lot of what we look at has to do with integrity of the property, meaning does it look like it did when it was constructed historically. And a lot of these places don't have that anymore mm -hmm. for whatever reason, whether they're in a low income neighborhood, whether it's just woeful neglect of the property, whatever it may be, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have significance. And so right. we're trying to figure out a way nationally to address this issue, that we shouldn't just discount something because it doesn't look pretty, or because it might not have a pretty history associated with it. Right. And so how do we address those issues? And so I've been working with a national committee to try to come up with some ways that we can address that deficiency that's going on. Right. Which I know of a certain district. <laughs> I'm not going to mention it because I don't want your head to explode. But <laughs> I, I know of a certain district where that would probably help the, those that want it argument to get it. <laughs> Absolutely. That makes sense to us. <laughs> so part of historic preservation Act of 1966 is the Section 106 process. Could you brief, well, go in as much detail as you want. <laughs> okay. National Historic Preservation Act, Section 106. Okay. Section 106 involves federally funded license and permitted actions. And so anything in the state of Oklahoma that falls into that category is reviewed by our staff. And so these state agencies acting on behalf of the federal agency or the federal agency themselves submit to our office their project, um, which includes 
If there are historic properties, they include the information about that, including a form, photos, and map. Um, if it's an archaeological site, they include information about that archaeological site. And then we have three people on staff who review it for technical to make sure that those properties, if they're eligible, how are we going to deal with that? If they're not eligible, how do we move it on? Um, if it is eligible and they're going to do something to a historic building, our architect looks at it to see what kind of effect it has on that property. So from the time it enters our door, we have 30 days to review that property and get it out our door. Generally, generally, we run between 15 and 20 days for projects for review, sometimes a little bit longer depending on the complications of the project. And then we have different ways that we handle it. So if there's nothing in the way of the project, the project moves forward. If there's a historic property that is considered eligible for the National Register, we deal with that in terms of looking at, is there a way to mitigate the adverse effect to the property? If not, how do we handle it? You know, mm -hmm. do they have to, we have a legal document that we work up with the agency that spells out how they can demo the property if they have to, how they're going to rehab the property if that's what their plans are. And so we work with the agencies, A, to make sure that they comply with the law, but also to make sure that they save as many of these historic resources as they can. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and then people. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and then there are other people on the staff who aren't necessarily those technical reviewers, but people such as yourself and Pam in our office who assist everyone in getting those projects moved out the door. That is true. I have sent out a lot of letters in my day <laughs> at Shippo. do it without you. <laughs> so. And I'm in charge of all those files, which. Mm -hmm. Can be a lot. There is a lot of rearranging of cabinet, you know, drawers because they get too full. And you've never had a paper cut until you get a folder paper cut because they're a little thicker. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think most people, even when we we teach a class twice a year on how to do Section One Hundred Six compliance. But I think most people don't understand the amount of projects we review in any given year. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're a small population for a state. Land-wise, we're a pretty substantial-sized state. But, mm -hmm. I mean, we still get upwards of 3,000, sometimes closer to 4,000 a year. And that's a lot when we're talking about a staff of nine. Right. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, aren't we the smallest shippo in the country? I don't know if that's true anymore. Many of the states have gone through staff reductions, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I'm not sure anymore if that's actually true. It feels like it. <laughs> it does. There are definitely days that it feels like we could use about 10 more people. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> definitely, for sure. And about 50,000 more square foot of space for all of our files. <laughs> right, because we have to retain them. I mean, while yes. we do a lot of things digitally, we still have to retain them. We have to retain the paper copies based on the state requirements. So Yeah. And then some poor schmuck has to go through and separate everything out and determine what gets kept and what gets thrown out. And yeah. I'm not saying anything, but that poor schmuck is me. <laughs> <laughs> so um as you said earlier. Each state and territory has them, but tribes also have, well, I guess there's a shippo, it's a TIPO, Tribal Historic Preservation Officer. 
they do. Those tribes that apply for that designation become what's called 101B2 TIPOs, which is, again, a reference to the federal legislation that uh, creates it. Now, under that provision, they apply for federal funds to operate their office. Other tribes who have not applied for that federal designation may also have tribal preservation officers. They just don't receive those federal funds to operate. There we go. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Things sometimes in Oklahoma can be a little confusing because a lot of states don't have that extra layer of the tribes. I'm not saying good or bad. I'm just saying that's what it is. We have to deal with that. A lot of other states don't. (laughs) Right. Well, we have, what, over 30 recognized tribes. And Mm -hmm. just recently, the youth of Utah have asked us to be included as a consulting party on projects in Western Oklahoma. So as tribes become more, I guess, aware of their role in Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. um, they notify us so that if a federal action is going to occur, um, those federal agencies know that they also need to contact the youth now. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, we definitely deal with the sort of weird collection of stuff in Section 106. People don't... The normal person has no idea of every aspect something that a city does has to go through views and and you know sort of these different process if you're putting in a splash pad at a park and you're getting federal money to do it goes through our office deq <laughs> <You know? laughs> there's there's a good four to six seven different things they have to go through to get approval just to put in the splash pad people don't realize that they get mad they're like we got the money for this two years ago. It's still not built. That's why it's got a ton of stuff it has to go through. <laughs> Absolutely. And we're just point. one small part of it. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. It, it can be fun getting all your approvals. <laughs> it's something. I don't know that fun's the word I would use, but sure. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so what is the step to get a historic district, how is that different than a house? Because obviously it's a whole neighborhood. So how is that a different process? And if you have a house in a historic district, who regulates what you can do to it? Hint, it's not us. (laughs) Okay, so these are two different questions. So we'll start with how do we get it designated? So In our office, we have a position that's delegated the survey coordinator. And that survey coordinator is in charge of collecting information about historic buildings around the state. And so say, um, we'll just say the city of Oklahoma City, because that's where our office resides. The city of Oklahoma City wants to designate a historic neighborhood as a National Register property. So they proceed with completing an architectural survey of the neighborhood. And we make a determination of its eligibility. If it is eligible, they can then either write the nomination themselves or they can hire a consultant to write a national register nomination for that district. We need a simple majority of the property owners to not object. And the property, no filibusters. No filibusters. No. Um, <laughs> once it's listed, it goes to our review committee. They review that nomination, make a recommendation to the state historic preservation officer. 
And then he will sign that nomination and we will forward it to the keeper of the National Register of Historic Places. At that point, if they've had no objections to the listing at the end of 45 business days, they will list those properties on the National Register. So that's the easiest mm-hmm. way to explain it. There are complications if people object or if we realize that maybe this district really isn't eligible, but that's for a different time and different place. So once it's listed on the National Register, that process itself is honorific. Nobody reviews what you can and can't do to your property if it's just listed on the National Register. However, if you live in a community where they have regulations regarding zoning that can create overlay districts that dictate what you can and can't do to your property, then the city is the one who regulates that. And there is a review process at the city. They have a board that sits that reviews these projects and makes those considerations and determinations. And so it is a big misconception that the National Register limits which can and can't do. What I like to tell people is you can paint that thing pink with purple polka dots. And the only thing that our office is going to tell you is you have really bad taste. Mm-hmm. But the city, the one who's going to come in and tell you, Now, you can't put a three-story addition on that two-story house. They're going to say, you know, they may say you cannot replace those historic windows with sliding windows that you need to put them back the way they were historically. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of different things that they have the ability to review. And that's just not our job. Right. Thankfully. We also don't give grants for you to paint your house. No. No. I get a lot of phone calls for that. Yeah. And I often get asked if I'm sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I, I work here. <laughs> yeah, we haven't, our office hasn't had grant funds available to do rehab to buildings since the 1980s. That's so been a while. <laughs> that long. Right. Probably when the Oklahoma economy had crashed due to the, what was it, Nichols Hills Bank <laughs> in the oil bust. Oklahoma went from living high on the hog to eating dirt <laughs> practically overnight. <laughs> yeah. It's, I always find it funny that people who are against higher taxes, once again, this is just the way it is. People against higher taxes, they don't want this or that, always want grants <laughs> to do some sort of rehab and it's like, well, you realize where that money come from taxes. (laughs) Right. Right. It's just like roads. You want a road that doesn't have potholes. Going to have to pay some taxes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So one of the more interesting properties in Oklahoma city is the infamous gold dome. Could you maybe describe that unique building? It got a lot of feathers ruffled here in Oklahoma City when a certain large company that you can go and get your prescriptions filled out wanted to tear it down and build a new building. This was several years ago. If you could sort of explain how that was stopped and sort of the issues that building has had since of becoming something new. Well, I think one of the things that you can take away from this is that in Oklahoma City, when something is about to happen to a building 
or a neighborhood that everyone identifies with, the city of Oklahoma City residents really step up. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to when they were building the interstate through the city, right? Mm -hmm. So Broadway extension as it comes through the city was going to take out chunks of Heritage Hills. And those people stood up and said, you're not going to do that to our neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. And so the Gold Dome was that same concept of here's this big gold semicircular building, hence the name Dome, right? Mm -hmm. um, that has a huge volume of space on the interior that served as a bank. And they wanted to, a developer wanted to buy it and tear it down and put up a new big box building. Well, the community rallied around that building because it's a building that they identify with. It's a building that they saw as important to the community mm -hmm. and really stood up to protect it. And eventually, the big box purchased an adjacent lot across the street and built their facility there. And mm -hmm. so the building sat and languished, right? I mean, what are you going to do with this big, round building that has voluminous interior space? horrible acoustics. What do you do with that? And so a woman in the community purchased it, put in her eye clinic, uh, our Oklahoma Main Street office, office out of that building for a long time. And then, um, and it was actually a tax credit project. Mm -hmm. So the work that she did to rehab it was claimed as tax credits. And then she sells it to someone who did some pretty awful things to it, right? Tore down the drive through painted it gold rather than leaving it. Mm -hmm. um, and so now it's sitting languished again with no occupants and no idea what to do with it. We've had a couple of people approach us to do tax credits in the building and turn it into a music venue. But remember, this is a metal building. Mm -hmm. Sticks are atrocious. Yeah. And you're going to have to do a lot of things to this building to make it compatible to a music venue that aren't going to comply with the Secretary of Interior Standards for rehab. And so it presents challenges. You know, how do you reuse a building like this and still get tax credits if you want them? Or how do you reuse it and make it a viable business? And so, you know, people are still trying to work that out. And until they do, unfortunately, that building's going to continue to sit vacant. Yeah. And it's well, too bad. Wasn't one of the last ideas to kind of turn it into like a world market, you know, that sort of sells grocery goods from around the world because it's small enough that you could do that, but still use, you know, the openness and, and do that. Wasn't that an idea recently? There's been lots of ideas with that building from something like that to a grow house to a dispensary, to... I mean, we've had two different people come to us to try to make it into a music venue. Now I think there's another group that's a multicultural group that wants to go into the building. And so, you know, until somebody can present a viable solution to reuse of this building, like I said, I think it's just going to yeah. continue to sit vacant. Yeah. It would make kind of a cool, I guess, boutique museum. You know, something small that's not going to get Topic wise, too huge. Um, but it's like a limited focus that might work for it. And, uh, the Gold Dome also has the adjacent tower that's sort of stylistically 
played off it. Was that also listed in a tax credit building? Because I know they've made it into a, a apartments. Yeah, that one's actually pretty fascinating. Um, it's designed to mimic Frank Lloyd Wright's building in Bartlesville. Okay. Except, in my opinion, the building in the city is a much better execution of that design. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright designed for himself, really. And so he was very short in stature. And so if you ever go through his buildings, sometimes they can feel very claustrophobic. And certainly the elevators in the building in Bartlesville are tiny. Um, staircases are small, that kind of thing. So this one in Oklahoma City is designed for the average person. Mm -hmm. And so it made the conversion into apartments much more simple, right? Because it it was already designed to take people up and down through those elevators to offices because it was an office building. Mm -hmm. um, and they could convert those offices into much larger apartments. Um, one of the fascinating things about it is that it's built off out of kind of a cantilever design. So there's a center core and the walls, the floors are suspended off that center core. Oh, that's cool. So the man who designed the shopping cart, he's from Oklahoma City, oh. had his office in the building. And they told him, you know, we're not so sure about it. So don't stick your file cabinets on the outside walls, right? Stick them in the center core because that's where all the structural support is. And so when he passed away and they went to clean out his office, they were all on the outside walls. So they determined, <laughs> yes, in fact, it was structurally sound. Um, but it's a pretty fascinating building. There were articles written about it when it was being constructed that it looked like a record player. And for those who are young, they don't understand the concept of a record player, right? But right. you and I know, as you stack it on that center mm -hmm. um, cylindrical, whatever. Anyway, as you stack records, that's what this building looks like. Mm -hmm. So um, people were commenting that there's no way that this thing could stand up, that it was going to fail, yada, yada. And so but it's a pretty amazing building. And yeah, they use tax credits. And from its beginning, it was occupied. I mean, people wanted to live in that building. And it was a great renovation of a historic building. Yeah, it's sort of weird because it's just this random tower, <laughs> not near any of the rest of the towers in Oklahoma City. It's just over there by itself. But what was fascinating there is you had the gold dome, which is obviously gold. Mm -hmm. You have this building behind it, which is also gold. Across the street was another building that was gold. And then um, probably two blocks away used to be a U.S. post office that was also gold. So there was something to be said about the colored gold at this intersection. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. Um, I will put a link in the description. So if you want to go and check out the gold dome and the building next to it, you'll be able to do that. It will require a little work on your part because you'll have to click the link. But otherwise, um, it, it really is an interesting sort of look at those two buildings. And of course, back in the day, Rainbow Records was across the street, and that's where you've got all of your uh, posters for vintage bands. So I spent a lot of time at Rainbow Records back in so the did my late husband. 80s. Yeah. <laughs> and now it just has a bunch of crap in it. Yeah. Yeah, um, and then at the same time, um, what is, 
it's the building they are putting all the new windows in and everything that was the Cotter Tower. Now what's it called again? It's a like, bank? No, because it's not a historic building. I mean, it's not something that we're working with them on. Right, but it was sort of a thing where we've looked at the facade and thought, ooh. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, Catch-22 sometimes. And it is. I don't know how much you can say, but isn't it safe to say that the project to renovate the first national building here in Oklahoma City is the largest tax credit project the state's had? When all is said and done, I believe it will be the largest tax credit project we've had in the state. Yeah. It's fascinating. <laughs> it it really is. I follow the owner on Instagram and the stuff they've uncovered is just fascinating. And the fact that he still has all all of his hair. He does, <laughs> and he does have a full head of hair. Um, <laughs> but. Yeah, because that whole process is what, like, four buildings and the oldest one was built what 1920-ish yeah yeah they um it was a conglomeration of buildings that as you look like if you look down at the aerial of the building you get um buildings in a row like three buildings in a row and then one that gets offset so Mm -hmm. it's facing a different street and so to make this project work he needed to build a parking garage, so he got permission to tear down the most recently built addition to that building to incorporate a parking garage, which is almost unheard of in historic building rehabs and getting tax credits. And so now he's got you know a nice parking garage there. You've got the hotel that will be on the main levels, and then up above will be apartments. Um, and we're going to be doing a walkthrough on the 28th. To see the progress, and we're looking forward to that. Yeah, they turned the old bank vault into a restaurant. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. That, I, I hope they made some so that big old door doesn't accidentally close. <laughs> That'd be awful. <laughs> um, I think from start to finish, I'm the last staff member here. Who started on this project, right? Mm, so from the yeah. beginning, I've been Team Gary Brooks, right? Mm-hmm. To see through this project. And so it'll be pretty exciting to see it on the 28th, to see how it's wrapping up. Yeah. this The sheer scope of work that has gone into this is amazing. And he just hasn't, like, as they uncover something, he's brought people that are experts in restoring paintings to come in and fix it and mm-hmm. just all sorts of stuff. They fixed the the glass roof over part of the bank ceiling. So that's open again and just all sorts of really cool stuff. The last time we were in it, I took photographs of the people cleaning the brass that used mm-hmm. to make teller windows. And so they were so meticulous with brushes and cleaning solutions to get years and years and years of cigar and cigarette smoke and just dirt off Off. that brass. So it's pretty impressive. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be a great thing for the city when that's done because one of the things that happened in Oklahoma city in the 1960s building wise was one of the greatest tragedies 
ever. And that was urban renewal. And Oklahoma City didn't just, you know, dabble in urban renewal. They they went in like a grenade. Yeah. <laughs> and um, maybe you could give a quick summary of what urban renewal was and how how it affected Oklahoma City. Well, urban renewal is a federal program that still exists. Um, and what they did is they would take their money and go into neighborhoods that they considered delinquent and clear them out and build new buildings, build new residential structures, maybe build. In the case of Edmond, they used it to wipe out an entire neighborhood and expand UCO. Mm -hmm. In the city of McAllister, they wiped out two or three city, no, it was more than that. There was quite a few city blocks and built one massive building. Um, And then in Oklahoma City, there was kind of, selective in that they would tear down historic buildings downtown and then you'd see these new ones pop up. And it was part of I.M. Pay's plan and how Oklahoma City would be refurbished, right? Mm -hmm. You'd take into these new malls, you'd have downtown parking, big massive swaths of parking because, well, honestly, in Oklahoma in general, people don't want to walk anywhere. That's why we're fat. (laughs) <laughs> people want to park right in front of the building and go in and so they built tore down well like the song said right we tore down and put up a parking lot mm-hmm. and so um you see a lot of that in oklahoma city which is sad and tulsa did a much better job of protecting their historic buildings downtown yeah because the like the biltmore for example mm-hmm. great building the new biltmore over on meridian is just a big Motel 6, if that. <laughs> um, and they never seem to have built back as many buildings as got torn down either. No. no. I know see, they, I was going to say the medical complex over at OU houses mm-hmm. got torn down to build that. So, I mean, the things, some of the things that they built back were clearly needed. Right. We need to expand our hospital facilities. We need to expand... Um, affordable housing, that type of thing. But the way they did it wasn't the best. Yeah. <laughs> the Historical Society does have the pay sort of model of what Oklahoma City would look like if they did everything, correct? Don't we have that? I'm not sure if we have it or if the city has it. But I know it's on display for a bit. A long time, yeah. Yeah. Historic preservation is interesting. Um, it's not exactly a fast pace sort of thing, but it does change every day. You're always dealing with new projects, new people coming in. And also, one thing I want to say, the the further back a property was listed, the less about it in the files we're going to have. They just yeah, did not sure. document it in the 70s like we do now. So if you come to go to any shippo, you want to find pictures of your house that's in a listed district and they don't have it, but it was listed in the 70s. That's why. And you can say that about the 80s, too. Standards for documentation didn't really change until the 90s. Mm-hmm. So. But yeah, anyway, we encountered a lot. People come in mm-hmm. a little sad because we don't have a picture of how our house looked in the 
70s or in the 30s or whatever, but that's just the way it is. It's not our fault. We do have in our building an amazing resource that can help them in Mm -hmm. terms of our research center, right? They have a huge collection of photographs and a huge collection of postcards, and they have them separated out by cities. Mm-hmm. So you can go down there, down there, our office is on the second floor, their office is on the first floor. So to me, you go down there and right. you search the collection and you can find some of these great photos of your old properties. Yeah, and the they've been archiving newspapers since the start. And I don't know, a ton of them are on microfish. There's a guy that probably holds the world record for microfishing stuff. He That's what he did when he worked for the historical society, retired, became a volunteer, and the only thing he wanted to do was microfish old newspapers. And he's been doing it for like twenty years. <laughs> yeah. Well when you're but, good at something you stick with it. That's right. Even yeah, unfortunately for me, the only thing I'm good at is making graving. <laughs> of all the things. But <laughs> No, I'm serious. My gravy's really, really good. <laughs> but yeah, we we do a lot of interesting stuff um, in the office. I haven't really gone into huge depth on the National Register because our National Register coordinator Matt is going to come on and go deeper into National Register. So that's kind of why I talked about uh, other stuff. So I think we've sort of covered everything I wanted to talk about this episode. I appreciate you coming on, taking your federal holiday off, coming to record a podcast. (laughs) No problem. But anyway, I appreciate it. appreciate your time. And I'm going to go ahead and close the episode like I always do. Like I always say, I fill it this regularly. But remember, try to live your life in a way that would make Mr. Rogers proud. Thank you for listening to Musings of an ADD Mind. If you enjoyed this podcast, or even if you didn't, please hit the subscribe or follow button. 